Brothers, be seated if you would. It is good to be back with you guys another year, along with pastoring the church in Portland, Maine. I, uh, I still have the privilege. I, I get to still serve as Pastor Ken's assistant. We are uh, two hours south of Bangor, Maine. We serve at the uh, largest city in Maine, and like most cities around this nation, a godless liberal city, but God is honoring the teaching of his word. In uh, three and a half years, we've seen a wonderful work of God. Uh, I still work remote for Pastor Ken. Ken travels extensively. I do his schedule, calendar, emails, and whatnot. And I bring that up because about six weeks ago, there was a, a conference that uh, Pastor Ken with a few others were slated to speak at at uh, South Florida, Calvary Chapel, Miami. And Pastor Zach was doing the, uh, their first ever South Florida Young Adults Conference. And about the day before the conference, and you can imagine like most, including this one, you know, 10 plus months of preparation and prayer, uh, prayers and logistics. And uh, just because of things that were happening back in Bangor, Maine, as Pastor Ken was dealing with a young individual who had gone back to heroin, uh, tragically, and uh, at that time, because of an overdose, this man, Brian, had lost circulation to his legs, then infection took over, and in the midst of all of that, including the amputation of both of his legs, Pastor Ken, about 24 hours before he was slated to speak in Florida, he had to bow out. He, he, he did, I believe, the commendable godly thing and realized he had to stay and minister to this family. So on the turn of a dime, I get the phone call and, and was asked if me and my wife would, would six hours from then get on a plane from Portland, Maine and go to Miami. And, uh, you know, humbled and grateful to do that, making some last minute preparations to do this. My, uh, my four and a half year old twins, Marley and Avner, they're just trying to put in their mind why mom and dad are so quickly leaving. Uh, you know, this was just so last minute. And my, my daughter, Marley, uh, four and a half years old, she says, Mommy, Daddy, why are you guys going to Urami? And we said, oh, no, honey, it's, it's Miami. And it, it reminds me that there's been such a difficult warfare on pronouns this last couple of years. <laughs> I mean, seriously, hasn't it? Has the world gone nuts? I mean, the fact that we're doing a men's conference offends people. That it's not a his, her, you, me, our conference. But, no, this is a men's conference. And, and the topic that was given to me, grateful as Pastor Ray and Pastor Jason tasked me with a, a, a very essential subject for you and I men. Identity. Our identity. In particular to warfare, as Pastor Jason, I believe, laid a wonderful foundation just a moment ago. That uh, there is a warfare God calls us to. And as we look at this portion of Bible, please turn, if you would, to 2 Samuel chapter 11, a well-known portion of Bible. You guys know this tragic text that is before us. As we look at this, I'm going to make the case to you. I'm going to pray the Lord would lead as we go through this, a case, that the issue at hand is identity. And what does God want to remind you and I, godly men, Christian men, Husbands, fathers, grandfathers, sons, and brothers, about what God has called us to, who we are, and whose we are. Read with me. We're going to look at the first five verses here of 2 Samuel chapter 11. Pick up with me in verse 1. It says, It happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel, and they 
destroyed the people of Ammon, they besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful to behold, verse 3, so David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers, he took her, and she came to him. And he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, so she sent and told David and said, I am with child. You guys bow your heads with me. Let's pray. Let's ask the Lord to minister to us this afternoon. Father, we, we look to this text, a well-known portion about a well-known character in the Bible. I pray this afternoon in September of 2023, knowing, Lord, you've called us here. You've allowed us to be here sitting beneath the teaching of your word. I pray you'd minister to us as we look at identity, who we are, whose we are. And Lord, how in such a day as this, you have called us to engage. Be the teacher we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. It seems appropriate this afternoon that you and I would consider together what I believe this very pivotal moment in the life of a king. You know, the legacy of this man, David, so often, I don't care if you're asking a young person or someone who's been under the Bible for a long time, so often when you think of the legacy of David, usually it's identified or connected with one or two other names. You either think David and Goliath, or you think of David and Bathsheba. With the first, of course, you have this you know, famous uh, feat of faith. Everyone from the kids' ministry on up, they know that story. We love that story of David and Goliath. And yet, on the other hand, with David and Bathsheba, we have this fleshly failure of a man that truly sobers the minds of every one of us as we come to this text. And I believe what compounds the tragedy surrounding this portion of Bible is up until this point in 1 Samuel, in the early chapters of 2 Samuel, we have been given the calling of David by the prophet himself. We know the conviction of David. Paul the Apostle says he was a man after God's own heart. We know the capability of David. Lions, bears, nations all fell prey to this man. The Bible tells us the commission of David. David will say in his own words, he says, I knew the Lord had established me as king over Israel, that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of God's people. He knew his commission. And yet we come to this portion of Bible and we are given the complacency of David. We agree in the Old and New Testament, God doesn't edit the life of his heroes, of his people. It's given to us right here. Uh, complacency, if you were to look at the Webster's 1828 dictionary, the word complacency is defined this way, the unawareness of actual danger. Fascinating, I'll submit to you as we go through this, I believe the danger lurking within David here in the king's palace, here in the springtime of Jerusalem, I believe what is connected to this danger is identity. My conviction is David forgot who he was because he forgot whose 
he was. A man who was clearly and undeniably sent by God. This is a man throughout his life had been submitted under the lordship of God. Suddenly finds himself in this chapter doing all the sending. Take note with me there in verse 1. David sent Joab to battle. But he remained in Jerusalem. You look at verse 3. David sent and inquired about the woman. How about tragically in verse 4? Then David sent messengers and took her and he lay with her. Now we didn't read it, but if you look at verse 6, David sent to Joab saying, send me Uriah the Hittite. And what did Joab do? He sent Uriah. You understand how things begin to change in his life. Forgetting who he was and whose he was, it will produce such a horror story that is given to us right here. This is a lordship issue. He forgets. He's enlisted. He has an officer, a master, a lord. Some of us here, no doubt, myself included, some of us here, we've experienced, at least we've uh, witnessed this type of thing. We've seen a similar tragedy in our own lives. We've seen a similar tragedy in the lives of other men, other women. And eventually, if you look to the next chapter, verse 1, 2 Samuel 12, verse 1, finally God has to send the prophet Nathan to correct this man. Identity, or the lack thereof, is at the very center of David's sin. Just as it stands at the very center of the culture and the world we're living in, at the very center of the sin that is plaguing our world today, it is an identity crisis. Would you guys agree in 2023, our nation's under a bit of an identity crisis? In fact, no takers, there's the, there's the message title. 2 Samuel 11 verses 1 through 5, an identity crisis. Do we believe our younger generation today is falling prey to an identity crisis? Hey, let's do this together for just a moment. Let's just try and imagine King David, the hero, the man after God's own heart. Let's just try and imagine young teenage David having to face the secular psychologist and big pharma of our day today. Just picture David on the therapist's couch Dealing with his issues. Can you do that for a moment with me? I mean, you know, you got a father like Jesse. And we're given in 1 Samuel chapter 16, Jesse, he showed such favoritism to the older seven brothers. At the same time, such neglect to David. I mean, how could David not be diagnosed with a failure to thrive attachment disorder in today's day and age? You try and imagine the pressures put on this 14 or 15-year-old boy when the prophet Samuel anointed him as king before all his brothers. I mean, David would be a cut-and-dry case for someone suffering from a general anxiety disorder. Too much pressure. All of those days working long hours out in the hills of Bethlehem, tending to his father's sheep. That was probably just an indicator of his social anxiety disorder. He didn't like big crowds. Add to this a horrible and a traumatic experience it must have been fighting not just the lion, but also the bear, protecting his father's sheep. I mean, this was no doubt a provocation to his chronic PTSD. At the same time, when you slay a giant at 17 years old and the nation writes a number one hit song about you, Saul has slain his thousands, but David is tens of thousands. Surely this would have been the onset of a narcissistic personality disorder. 
Once David learns that King Saul seeks to destroy him, several attempts are made for his life. No doubt there's a chronic paranoia syndrome that's taking on. It would have been debilitating, always looking over his shoulder. And then as the story continues, David will hide in the cave of Adullam. He'll live off the land in Carmel. He'll go back into the cave of En Gedi. He'll spend the better part of a decade living as an enemy of the state. And no doubt by 30 years old in today's day and age, David would have had chronic depression and he would have been, no doubt, manic, bipolar, unfit for the job. But we're grateful that's not the story with David, aren't we? David did not fall to such victim mentality. David didn't take on the identity thrown at him from the world in the system that we live in. It's clear through scripture that he knew who he was from a young age. It's clear to you and I through scripture he knew whose he was. While the entire nation of Israel is shaking literally in their armor, and while the king is hiding in his tent, young teenage David in 1 Samuel 17, verse 45, he takes the sling and a stone, and he says, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts and the God of the enemies of Israel. He knew he was sent. He knew who was sending him. We love this about David. Guys, in that narrative of David and Goliath, I mean, talk about identity. He refused to even wear the armor of a failed and a carnal king. David knew that God was his friend. Therefore, Goliath was his foe. Faith and obedience was sending him to the fight. This was true for Daniel, the prophet of God. You remember, I mean, the Babylonians were the masters at confusing the identity of their captives. Remember as the prophet Daniel, that book opens up in chapter 1, the chief of the eunuchs, the chief of the Babylonians, he gave Daniel a new name, Belteshazzar, trying to impart a new identity, different than what God had called him to be. It says, Nebuchadnezzar appointed for those men a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine they drank, years of training, we call that indoctrination. At the end, Nebuchadnezzar was hoping that they would all serve his kingdom. And how eerily similar to the world we're living in today. But David didn't fall prey to that. Daniel wouldn't fall prey to that. It tells us Daniel purposed in his heart, not Belteshazzar. Daniel purposed in his heart. He knew who he was. He wouldn't defile himself. Likewise, David, through the Psalms, David would say, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And so through the early years of David and all that the Bible gives us, we see a man who was secure in his manhood, who was secure in his identity. He knew God had sent him. He knew who he was because he knew whose he was. And then we come to this tragic area of Bible. Faith and obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ will send you and I into the fight. And brethren, I'm sure you all know this, there is a fight on our hands. It is no secret, this holy book that you and I hold before us this afternoon, this book calls you and I to a fight. Old and New Testament, the scriptures are riddled with such a call. The Apostle Paul, writing to young Pastor Timothy, as Jason just reminded us moments ago, 2 Timothy 2, verse 3, you must, don't you guys appreciate that word must? You must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, he said it this way. 
He said, it has been the lot of all God's people to fight their way to heaven and brethren, it must also be ours. The lot of all of us, saints from old up until present day, we must fight our way to heaven. David had long known this. He had long demonstrated this until here, until this unedited portion of Bible that God puts before you and I in the scriptures that we might glean and take heed. Men in the hearing, I'm sure there are law enforcement, there are veterans, there are children of veterans or law enforcement. And those who have this background, I am sure you recognize the term operational readiness military term. I, I served in the Marine Corps as an infantryman. I, I served one year before being kicked out of uh, the armed services for a heroin overdose through the years of my rebellion towards God, my prodigal season. But I was an infantry Marine and, and, and you know, operational readiness or combat readiness, we called it in the Marine Corps, was, was something that you, you just were trained and learned and instilled in from day one of basic training. It's defined this way. The ability to respond to a conflict, including your training, your preparation, and resources available to engage the enemy under such duty. Now, hopefully you can see the crossover. You can discern, likewise, the application into our spiritual life. That we are called to, as men of God, as Christians, that there's an operational readiness required. We, we don't just wait until the lockdowns of 2020 to figure out, where do, where, where do I stand? What does the Bible say? We don't just wait until the drag queens come into the elementary school and say, man, what do I do about my kids? And no, no, we're called to train, to train, to train, to train. That when things get crazy, we say, no, that's not who I am. That's not who I belong to. That's not whom or whose I am. David seemed to have lost this operational readiness. Guys, one commentator said it so eloquently. In this portion of Bible, he said, had David's attention been where God wanted it to be, then it never would have been put where God didn't want it to be. While Joab is laying siege to Ammon, Satan is laying siege to David back in the comforts of the palace. Look at verse 1 again. It happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel. They destroyed the people of Ammon and they besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. Scottish theologian G. Campbell Morgan, writing of this passage, he said, in the whole of the Old Testament literature, there is no chapter more tragic and full of solemn warning than this. All right, here's the simple reading in our vernacular of verse one. Here it is. There is a time when kings go out to battle, but this king stayed home. The devastation that's going to transpire, brethren, think about this. What is going to take root from this moment, it all will trace back to the conjunction, but David. In other words, it's a very severe iniquity and sin that takes place with Bathsheba, with Uriah. It's severe, but I don't believe it's sudden. I, I believe it can be traced back. Brothers, you and I, we consider the culture we find ourselves in today. Do you think it just suddenly happened? Or had it been bristling under the foliage for a long time in our nation? Suddenly coming to a head. 
If men today would take their rightful position as spiritual heads of their households, if men today would truly understand the call on their life, the duty in which they are to represent the scriptures, to be the pastors of their homes, single men, that we would walk in purity, that we would be, as Paul says, written epistles, read and seen by all men. If we actually understood our identity in Christ, would our nation be in a different condition? Of course it would. It's rhetorical. We know that. We must be who God has called us to be. And with that, we therefore have to be where God has called us to be. In verse 1, we have this man, Joab. He's in the, the vanguard. Military term. That means the front line. David, he's in the rear guard. Again, appealing to the military-minded men. The term in the rear with the gear. Not necessarily a sentiment you want said of yourself during time of war. You know, while the soldiers of God's army are engaged in blood, sweat, tears of divine service, you're hiding amongst the gear. Uh, Jason mentioned the Snuggie and sucking your thumb. That's not where you want to be while your comrades are engaged in the fight. Guys, in the rear with the gear. Do you remember where King Saul's story began? 1 Samuel chapter 10, it tells us Saul, the son of Kish, was chosen by the people. We want a king, God. God warned him, okay, fine, have it your way. We want a king. Saul was chosen, it says in 1 Samuel 10 verse 22. But when they sought for him, he could not be found. And then the Lord spoke and said, there he is hiding amongst the stuff. Hiding amongst the equipment. Saul was the man that was in the rear with the gear. He was the failed uh, king. He was the man of compromise. That wasn't David. We, we've seen so much of David. It wasn't where David belonged. And, you know, as a brief highlight reel, up until this point, think about how David proved to you and I that he knew God was calling him to be the, the leader and the warrior. Uh, 1 Samuel 17, David fights against Goliath and the Philistines. 1 Samuel 18, David is given a high rank in Saul's army. 1 Samuel 18, verse 13, David is given charge over a thousand men. In 1 Samuel 22, David gathers a ragtag group of malcontents to fight alongside him in the cave of Adullam. 1 Samuel 23, David attacks the Philistines, saves the city of Calah. 1 Samuel 27, David and his men conduct raids against the Kenites and the Jerahmelites. In 1 Samuel 30, David defeats the Amalekites. 2 Samuel 5, David becomes the king of Israel, conquers the Jebusites, which becomes Jerusalem, the city of David. And in 2 Samuel chapter 8, David conducts battle against the Philistines, the Moabites, the Syrians, and the Edomites, and wins. Can we agree David belonged on the front lines where God had called him? Is that not where God calls you and I, brethren? As men, does God not commission you and I, knowing whose we are? We know who we are, and therefore we know where God is calling us in such a time as this. Safe to assume that we are understanding, as I've made mention, this term I've used, vanguard, it means front lines. Very fascinating. You could go on your Webster's uh, app, look on Google, and, and say, okay, Webster's, what does the term front lines mean? How, how is it identified? Very fascinating. 
One sentence, Webster's 1828 says, front lines is an area of potential conflict and struggle. All right, so spiritually speaking, you know, because I don't want to be just hypothetical and, you know, okay, so we're hearing that we have an identity. We're reminded today of who God is, the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We're reminded through the scriptures as men, God has called us to be the salt and to be the light. But what does that mean? What does the front line look like? Well, think about this, a potential area of conflict and struggle. But the Bible testifies our flesh does everything it can to avoid that place, doesn't it? I mean, physically we don't, but spiritually, the, the Bible tells us in Galatians 5, the flesh lusts against the spirit, the spirit lusts against the flesh. You know, we have this uh, warring within us. A couple days ago, arriving early, and uh, me and one of our assistant pastors, Ryan, we, we came in and got uh, acclimated to the high elevation and desert uh, air you guys have here. So yesterday I said, Ryan, we should go run that canyon over the hotel room. And we did, kind of. We attempted. And uh, downhill was easy and adventurous. And then we had to turn back around and then hit that probably half-mile incline back up to where our car was parked. And the struggle was real. I, I remember, I mean, I no sooner in my spirit, in my mind, I said, Travis, you're not going to give up. You're going to run up this hill. I, I no sooner said that, my body said, no, you're not. You're going to stop. <laughs> I was actually, I was alarmed. I told Ryan, I go, I'm, I am embarrassed by how quickly I stopped. But, but you think about, for you and I, uh, we with physical things, we, we will do tough things. You know, where I come from there in the northeast in the state of Maine. Maine, Maine men, and I, I bet it's no different here. We're a unique bunch. Yeah, we'll do things like uh, stalk whitetail in the wildest weather conditions. We'll haul lobster traps in gale force winds. We'll do this type of stuff having the times of our lives. But to open our Bibles and share it with our kids, you've got to be kidding me. I can't do that. To, to participate in, in some sort of ministry? No way. I'm not, I'm not equipped for that. God calls us to a potential area of conflict and struggle spiritually. The place of warfare. David knew that. And, you know, maybe, maybe there's a skeptic here and saying, all right, come on, Travis, lighten up a bit. Right? I mean, you know, if I personally were to just kind of avoid this spiritual fight altogether, won't it eventually just subside after a while? Won't someone else take my place? And, you know, things are just going to progress back to a better place. I use that word intentionally. I mean, sure, there may be drag shows in our schoolhouses, denial of gender in our classrooms, drug overdoses all around us, divorce rates skyrocketing, devil clubs in the after-school programs, dirty sites fill the online world, there's division in our homes, depravity in our culture. We got the Democrats in the White House and the State House and so often in the church house. We have people who have no idea what it actually means to follow Christ and to apply his word and how that affects every area of our life, especially and including politics. I mean, we're looking around and we're seeing what's happening and we have to ask ourselves, what are we doing? Are we doing our part, men and brethren? You know, concerning a very hot issue like slavery all those decades ago, it was the late 1800s revivalist preacher Charles Finney, you know, realizing there was a political subject that many preachers were seemingly wanting to avoid. 
Charles Finney was quoted, he said, revivals are hindered when ministers take the wrong stand on questions involving human rights. The church cannot turn away from the issue. Silence upon the subject is virtually saying that the subject is not a sin. But it is a sin. And the Bible says that the church house, according to what Paul says in 1 Timothy 3, it is the pillar and the ground for truth. Where's the world going to find truth? CNN? Fox News? Wikipedia? Brethren, where, where did we find truth? Where did you and I come to the place where we realize who we are? What our purpose was? Our need for salvation? Our need to get right with the God and the creator of the universe? That not just getting saved, but God then sanctifies us and calls us into a mission field? Where did you and I find truth? I know where I found it. We have to be men willing to take a stand on, on issues, and I don't care if it's from a public arena or so often it's in the, in the personal workplace, day-to-day -day conversation. Yeah, truly, uh, social media can be a place for it. There, there are areas where we, we can actually stand up for what the truth is. Because if we don't do it, who will? I think there's a reminder for you and I in this, the brutal attack on the sanctity of human life, gender, transgenderism, sexuality, masculinity. I mean, has God not enlisted you and I at such a time as this? You know, one of my favorite sermons in the New Testament outside of the ministry of the Lord Jesus, Paul the Apostle, when he comes into the Areopagus in Acts 17, I mean, he came to the think tank of the world. The Facebook news feed of the day was right there. Everyone gathered together, the Epicureans, the Stoics, they just came together to hear some new thing, some new thing. Yum, 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 yum. Like, love, comment, share. This was them. Can you picture it? And by the sovereign hand of God, here comes Paul the Apostle waiting on his comrades from Berea. He's by himself. You remember. And he's walking about over 30,000 figurines, historians tell us, were worshipped there in Athens. But they were a superstitious bunch, and they had that one catch-all, remember? To the unknown God. Paul says, to him, I'd like to uh, proclaim to you. He gets the invitation. He's speaking to the, this massive audience of the PhDs and the scientists and the MDivs. I mean, all the brilliant scholars of the day. And in that, through that sermon that Paul the Apostle gives, in Acts chapter 17, he says, God has pre-appointed our times and the boundaries of our dwellings. I have so meditated on that so often. Think about that, brethren. God doesn't just call you and I and know that we would be planted in some part of New Mexico. He knows the very time in human history we'd be here. He knows the areas that you and I would work. He knows the church family that we would be serving alongside together. I mean, God is so intricately involved in him. We live, we move, we have our being, Paul says in that sermon. So for you and I, God called you and I to this crazy day and age. What is history going to say of us? What is the history going to say of the church? You know, when you look back in the 1930s, and Erwin uh, Lutzer is one of the greatest contemporary authors and historian that I have come across concerning what was happening in the German evangelical world. Do you know there are over 30 million German evangelical so-called born-again believers in the 1930s in Germany? 30 million? And yet how many of the German evangelical world just turned a blind eye to what was happening? What is history going to say of you and I, brethren? God's called us to a battle. He's called us to engage. He's called us to the front lines, which is a spiritual place of discomfort 
and struggle? Are we willing to respond to the call? We have this story with David that is, uh, is tragic. Paul writes to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2, verse 4, No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. I want to break that down just briefly. I agree with everyone in the room today. This life certainly has its affairs. It has its responsibilities. You and I as men, uh, fathers, brothers, grandfathers, sons, there's all kinds of duties that we're called to, uh, to uphold. We're grateful for that. Very, very interesting, that uh, word used in 2 Timothy 2 verse 4, where Paul says, those who are entangled with the affairs of this life. The Greek word is pragmateia. That's where we get the word pragmatic. In other words, Paul is saying it is pragmatic to acknowledge that we have things on our plate, of course. It's the same writer who says, if a man doesn't work, he shall not eat. He's worse than an infidel, an unbeliever. So it is pragmatic that our lives are full and we are providers and we are stewards and we, uh, you know, we serve in different capacities. At the same time, what the warning is, have we become entangled in the things that are pragmatic? Billy Graham famously said, if this world has your heart, then maybe heaven's not your home. We, we get ensnared in things that are not the most important things. A very worthwhile question this afternoon. Who is the Lord of our heart? I, I believe as a king and as a soldier, David knew that operational readiness was required. He knew the enemy could attack at a moment's notice. Remember what Charles Spurgeon said? It has been the lot of all God's people to fight their way to heaven. But how much more so in the spring of the year? That's what it says here. The spring of the year. You know, the longer days and the warmer weather. I just recently, this past February, Pastor Ken took a group of almost 90 men and women to Israel. And uh, a group from the church a few hours south that I pastor. Having never gone, me and my wife and another couple from our church, we joined and we got to experience Israel for the first time. What an experience and I was grateful to be there with my pastor. And, uh, you know, February in Maine is a pretty cold time of year. And all of us were excited to go to the Mediterranean world, right, like Israel. And uh, I will never go to Israel in February again. <laughs> You know, Jerusalem, we had freezing rain. Pastor Ken, didn't we? Quite miserable, really. Uh, freezing rain, 40-degree temperatures. I understand why in this part of the world, nations and kings and armies, they wait to the springtime to fight. You, you know, you, things kind of harden up. The ground is no longer mushy and soft. And the rains. You know, for you and I, springtime means spring training and baseball. It didn't mean that back then. It was when nations and kingdoms and armies, they went out to fight. Okay, but consider that in our New Testament application. It, it told us here in, in 2 Samuel 11, verses 1, that in the springtime, when nations go out to battle, Joab did what he was called to do, but David didn't. In the New Testament, Jesus gives a forecast prophetically. We call that the, um, the discourse of Olivet. Matthew 24 and 25, Luke chapter 21. In that, think about what Jesus says as we consider springtime. 
In Matthew 24, verse 32, Jesus says, Learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, know that it is near, it's at the doors. You know what Jesus just said? According to what the Lord said, springtime would look like this. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in various places. All of these would be the beginning of sorrows. They would deliver you up to tribulation. They will kill you. You will be hated by all nations' sake for my name. Many will become offended. How about that for the you know, politically correct culture we find ourselves living in today? Many will be offended. Many will hate one another. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. Brethren, springtime has come for you and I. How could you and I not be living at the very precipice, at the very end of the sixth day? You guys remember what Peter says, one day with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Now, we actually do believe the biblical account. We here at Calvary Chapel, we do believe in a young earth. We believe because of Genesis 5 and Genesis 10 and the Holy Spirit-inspired table of nations, we believe that we're living in a 6,000 human history, a history of a human race. From Adam until where you and I are, we're about 6,000 years, 4,000 years of the Old Testament, about 2,000 years of the New Testament. So I'm not great with math, but that puts us about 6,000 years in. Peter says one day is 1,000 years, 1,000 years is one day. So we're like at the sixth day. And then someone might say, well, Travis, what about the seventh day? Well, good question. The seventh day Jesus talked about. When he comes back again after the seven-year tribulation, he'll have a 1,000-year reign. So how are you and I not right here at the end of the sixth day? And we look at what Jesus described to us. This is what springtime will look like. And we're saying, yeah, that, that sounds like what's happening in the world today. This is when kings go out to battle. While faith would call you and I to the vanguard, while obedience to our master would call us to the place of struggle, it is our flesh that calls us to the rear guard place of comfort. It is our flesh that'll call us back to a place where we have forgotten that we were sent and in fact we do the sending. And that's what David does here. Verse 2, then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed. He walked on the roof of the king's house and from the roof he saw a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful to behold. Here it goes. Here it begins. Irish poet Oscar Wilde once said, I can resist anything except temptation. <laughs> Not true. Two men, Stephen Atterburn and Fred Stoker, they wrote a book entitled Every Man's Battle. They said something so fascinating. In that book, they said this, it is our maleness that brings a natural vulnerability to sexual sin. Our maleness. Can you imagine how many people would be offended by that statement? Our, okay, so the question at hand for 99.9% .9 of us in the hearing this morning, because I, I know maybe one individual, a brother in the Lord, I know one individual that seems truly impervious to sexual temptation. I'm, I'm grateful for that, brethren. For the majority of men and brethren I know, that's not the, the case with us, right? So for 99.9% .9 of us in the hearing today, the question is not, do we have sexual temptation? 
That's rhetorical. The better question is, how are we handling sexual temptation? Are we crucifying it with the work of the Holy Spirit and obedience to his word and fellowship and accountability, things Pastor Jason explained to us, or are we being crucified by it? I believe personally, uh, serving the role of pastoral ministry for just shy of seven years, assistant pastor, now this role of senior pastor, a young man in the ministry. But with my own personal experience of living in rebellion to God and now serving in this role, my conviction is why so many men are not engaged in the fight is because in their secret hidden life, they are being pummeled, beat down in this area of sexual sin. That they are condemned, they have absolutely no confidence because they know secretly in their life, whether it's pornography or some other connection to the sexual immorality, they are being pummeled. So what are we doing with it? Are we, are we crucifying it or is it crucifying us? Several years ago, I remember listening to a pastor teach on this portion of Bible in 2 Samuel chapter 11. The commentator said, here lies the Old Testament version of Humpty Dumpty. Humpty David sat on a wall and Humpty David had a great fall. Isn't it so tragic when we come to the point of this man's history that we know of him? I mean, think about this, brethren. It's not that David is starved for female companionship. By this point in the story, he's been married six times. Six mother-in-laws. <laughs> Concubines. David is only bearing witness to what you and I all have experienced ourselves. What is it? Sin is never satisfied. Isn't that true? He's bearing witness of that very fact. He wasn't lacking uh, uh, female companionship. He was lacking spiritual discipline. He had forgotten who he was because he'd forgotten whose he was. He'd grown complacent. Uh, the New Testament in James chapter 1, verse 15, I personally, I like the New King James or the King James, but you know, the New American Standard Bible records James 1, verse 15 this way. James 1, verse 15, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it has run its course, brings forth death. We guys know that spiritual truth, right? Is it ever been more clearly demonstrated in all the Bible than right here? I mean, think about this. Look at verse 3. So David sent. All of a sudden, there's this lust. He inquired about the woman. Someone said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Look at the action, verse 4. Then David sent messengers, took her. She came to him, and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity. She returned to her house, and the woman, notice, conceived, as James told us. So she sent and told David, and she said, I am with child. Is this not a perfect demonstration of what James told us? When lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. When sin, coming to maturity, or is, you know, run its course, it brings forth death. Now, you guys know the rest of this story in this chapter. We know what happens. The child will die. We understand that Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, will be murdered. We understand that the reputation of David the king will suffer. The respect under uh, the leadership of his men will tragically be uh, altered from this point moving forward. You know, the eventual betrayal of Ahithophel at the end of his life, remember his most trusted counselor, Ahithophel? 
That all has this genesis right here. The Bible tells us Ahithophel was the grandfather of Bathsheba. So when Absalom and Ahithophel conspire, all of that began in verse 1 of 2 Samuel 11, but David remained in Jerusalem. So it is with you and I today, brethren. Our complacency in time of war, it's not just lazy, which it is, but it's lethal. That we should ask ourselves, is someone else suffering because of my lack of identity? Is someone else suffering because of my lack of duty? Is someone else suffering because of my lack to confess and to repent? What happens when we are no longer fit for the service called into this fight? Is our wife suffering from spiritual complacency? How about your children? Your grandchildren, are they suffering? How about your coworkers? Remember what I made mention of earlier, Paul the Apostle says, we, writing to the church in Corinth, are written epistles. I agree, many will never have an opportunity to publicly, officially proclaim a message or preach a message. Much more importantly, God calls all of us to live the message. The writer of Hebrews says that we should pursue peace and holiness with all men, for without such, who will see the Lord? That walking in purity. How about those lost human souls whom God has put in our sphere of influence, who God has ordained and appointed you and I, that we would lead them to Christ? Are they suffering because of our spiritual complacency? Are they suffering because of our lack to step into the fight? Brethren, when we forget who we are, it's because we have first forgotten whose we are. We talk about dog tags. You know, military men, we understand, you know, amongst other things pertinent on that little piece of metal that is worn around your neck, I dare say maybe the most pertinent is your blood type. Uh, dog tag, you get your arm blown off, you need a, a, a blood transfusion, you need quick medical attention. They want to make sure they're putting the proper blood inside of you. Don't we have an identity? Don't, aren't we stamped? Were you and I not purchased with the blood? Does the blood of Christ rule and reign over our lives? Paul the Apostle says, you were purchased by the blood of Christ. It's no longer your life. It's his. Isn't that a good reminder for an identity today? That we have been purchased. And therefore, it's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in us. And what a reminder here as we consider this. So, as I wrap this up, this topic of identity. In contemplation, as I look at this portion of Bible, I understand the theme of our conference that we're gathered together this weekend. This idea of, of, of warfare and military. I, I believe that within the hearing today, there has to be one of three identities listening. I'll begin with the first one. I believe there's certainly a, a probably a large majority in the hearing on this Friday afternoon who are the servants of the vanguard. I believe certainly there's a large group of men, they are engaged in the battle, serving in the local church, walking in purity, being discipled and making disciples. How organic it is when we are being discipled ourselves. I believe the, the, the word of God today would remind you and I that we wouldn't lose heart, that we would continue to hunger and to thirst 
for the presence of God, that we would be walking in the power of God, that you and I would continue doing the will of God. Galatians 6, verse 9, let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we will reap a harvest if we don't lose heart. So there's an identity. I'm grateful for the, the fellow soldiers of Christ engaged in the frontline battle. The second identity. If you're not a soldier of Jesus Christ, maybe there are some draft dodgers here today. You guys know the term. God has been calling you to surrender your life and your will to him, and you have flat out refused. You just say, thank you, but no thank you. You know, the contrary thought, a happy thought, a false thought from hell, that we're all children of God. Well, you guys know what the Bible says, the identity of someone who rejects the lordship of Jesus Christ. Paul says in Ephesians 2, we are children of wrath, sons of disobedience. Now instead, the apostle Peter says, God is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. If you're a draft dodger today, God is enlisting you. He's calling you. He wants to purchase you. He wants to redeem your life. He wants to fill you with his Holy Spirit. He wants you to get plugged in with a group and a body of believers to fulfill the call in which he's put on your life before the foundations of the world were created. He's calling you. It's the third category, however, that I believe to be the most confusing. Interesting, Jason mentioned it so briefly in the, in the first message. The third category, it's a peculiar, it is a problematic individual within our armed services today. It's what we refer to as a conscientious objector. Jason found a, a rare but good example of one, but typically a conscientious objector, not so good. It's a contradiction. Now, when I enlisted in the Marine Corps in 2008, finished 13 weeks of boot camp, nine weeks of infantry training, then went out to Light Armor Vehicle School. It was at the very end of Light Armor Vehicle School before I was getting off to my duty station. I went back to a life of drugs, black tar heroin, overdose, began a process of being separated from Camp Pendleton in 2009. In that process, they removed me quickly from the training and put me, for lack of better terms, on the shelf. It was a student administration company. And it was the place where the bottom 10% of Marines were put until you could be legally separated from the Marine Corps. It was humiliating. And um, it was in that, that season of life in Camp Pendleton, being surrounded by other men who were being court-martialed or discharged or whatnot. It was there that I ran into a gentleman by Private First Class Fritz was his last name. And this was a, a, a strange individual. Private, uh, Private First Class Fritz, he was a man who had not just excelled through boot camp, as I learned his story. I believe he graduated top of his class. On top of that, he actually then went into infantry training, graduated the top of his class as a grunt. From there, he went and wanted to enlist in the doctrination of special forces, so he went to MARP, Marines Awaiting Reconnaissance Platoon, where you run, swim, run, swim, run, swim, and run, and swim. And then when you are done that, then you go from MARP into BRP, Basic Reconnaissance Platoon, where you run, swim, run, swim, run, swim. I mean, you are the top 5% of the Marine Corps. Jason, you can testify to these types of men. Private First Class Fritz went through all of that and excelled and then decided he was going to be a conscientious objector. I don't really want to fight. This is someone who is unwilling to follow orders. It's problematic. It's peculiar. It's a bit contrary. Okay, spiritually speaking, are, are, are there anyone here today 
who at some point in your life, you have surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. Maybe it was a place of brokenness or crisis or desperation. You heard the gospel. You knew you needed to be forgiven. You wanted to be saved, not just from your own sin now, but for the wages of sin for eternity. But then life happens. And like a conscientious objector, you're no longer willing to follow orders. You're no longer submitted under the lordship of Jesus Christ. You're enlisted in the service, but you're entangled in sin. Maybe you're entangled in self. You're entangled in compromise. You're no longer being sent. Instead, you're doing the sending of your own life, just asking God to co-sign it. You find yourself in the rear with the gear. May you hear the Spirit of God today call you to repentance from that if you are a conscientious objector, that your life, like mine, was purchased, that God has called you and I to such a time as this, that God has pre-appointed our times and the boundaries of our dwelling. He knew that we would be alive in the crazy days that we're living in and that he'd call you and I to take a stand. Now is the time when kings go out to war, brethren, in the days we're living in. My final point I'll make this afternoon, just glance back to verse 3, if you would. 2 Samuel 11, verse 3, notice this. So David sent and inquired about the woman And someone said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? That stands out to me. I believe there was a faithful witness present in David's moment of vulnerability that day. You notice the word someone is italicized in your Bibles. It suggests that the witness was actually within David. There was actually a still small voice warning and convicting the man of God. David, what are you doing? You know who this woman is. You know who she's married to. She's not married to you. Isn't this fascinating? May you and I, brethren, may you and I likewise be sensitive to the Spirit's warning of complacency in our lives as well. May you and I today be reminded this afternoon who we are because of whose we are. May you and I be reminded that we have an identity imparted to us from our Father in heaven. The Bible says that we are his workmanship. We're his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus. Created for good works in which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amen? Would you guys pray with me? Lord, I I, I do pray for every man here, myself included. Lord, I pray that we would hear from the Spirit of God as we looked here at the, at the text message from heaven. Lord, we're reminded of men such as David, that even in moments of comfortability and complacency, that, Lord, we can so easily take you off of the throne of our heart and put ourselves right back on it. Lord, I pray if there's a man here who finds himself in that draft dodger category, Lord, they've never surrendered their life to Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, today would be the day. They would surrender, tap out, Lord. They would enlist in the army of divine service. Lord, I pray for the third category, for anyone here who may be a conscientious objector, someone who is enlisted but yet unwilling to follow orders. I pray likewise that the Spirit of God would convict a heart. Lord, I pray that the goodness and grace and long-suffering of God would begin to overwhelm their lives. 
or they'd be reminded again that you have commissioned them to a fight. And Lord, for the brethren who are serving on the battlefield, I pray, Lord, you'd strengthen your people. Help us, Lord, to be bold in the days we're living in. Lord, help us to take a stand that we would be the pillar and the ground for truth, holding up high the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Grace and peace to you, brother.